may be seated. He is risen. Yeah, that's what Pastor Jonathan wanted. Yeah, that's exactly what time it is. He is risen indeed. As I was preparing this message, I uh, had my dad on my heart. He's gone away. He's in the kingdom. My dad, I knew that he loved us, but my dad was a firm dad, and uh, I'm thankful for that. I, I guess that's the way I am with my kids. But one thing about it, they know I love them also. And so I'm speaking this to all of us this morning because I know we've all had parents, and especially our dad, when you're doing something wrong, he might say something like, watch it, son, you're skating on thin ice. Well, you know, I never understood that because being raised, born and raised in Lawrenceville, Georgia, I found those words pretty comical. But I never told my dad that. But the point is, I knew what he meant. And what he meant was your behavior, your actions have just put me in a precarious position. And it meant that the well-being of my rear end has just been put in jeopardy. And I didn't like that. And, you know, when I got older, it meant your weekend plans and all your fun and all those things, they had become uncertain. And he meant that you have did something wrong. And because of that, all your hopes and all your plans for peace and fun that weekend, all that is now iffy. And you know, even in our adult life, it's lived on thin ice. We use grown-up phrases for that now, But it's still the same idea. We might say the bottom has fallen out of the economy. The future with the company is uncertain. Or my marriage is collapsing. Things like that. We might say my health is falling apart. And when we use phrases like that, what we mean is what it was and what we were counting on and how it was heading, it's not that way anymore. Things are uncertain, and none of us like that. Matter of fact, everything about life is ultimately uncertain. Things that we've come to lean on and rely on, they often aren't what we think they are, except, of course, for the Christian. Who knows what it is to repent of his sins and put his trust in Christ. The Bible says that's something that's not all of us understand and that everyone has. You see, the world can be tenuous and it can be uncertain and it can be iffy, but when it comes to your relationship with God, that is something that the believer can have confidence and security and assurance in. It ought to be in your life an indomitable, and it ought to be the thing that if everything else falls apart, that one, you understand, Jesus Christ will never go away. And the Bible says it's because of the nature of the love 
of the God who has entered into a personal relationship with us. We're not on thin ice. It's more like being on the deck of an aircraft carrier. I'll never forget when our son Anthony was in the Navy and he took Lydia and I on a tour of one of the aircraft carriers. And if you know anything about those things, there's multiple layers on the deck of an aircraft carrier of steel and composite and aluminum alloy and all that stuff. And then there's 47,000 tons of steel holding up that deck of that aircraft carrier. It's not like it's on thin ice. It's firm and it's solid and you can stand on it all day long with the sledgehammer and hit it. That thing's not going anywhere. That image is likened to what the Bible calls a solid foundation. And the book of Psalms alone, I think it says around 36 times, it, it equates our relationship to God to a rock or a fortress. And those are good phrases. You know, everything else in our life can go wrong. David said, my mother and my father, they can completely disown me. But my relationship with God is always solid. It's the kind of security that our hearts long for, something that doesn't change or goes away, something that never diminishes, something that is a constant in our lives. The Bible says all of this is predicated on the attribute of God's love, an indomitable love, a glorious love, a love that doesn't change even when things in this world change. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8, uh, verses uh, 29 through 37, and Paul is saying this is really the difference between the average person in the world and God's people who should be as bold as a lion. And I'm not talking about being arrogant or even confident in ourselves, but our inner disposition ought to be radically different from everyone else who's out there wondering how the future is going to work out. They're anxious and unsure about everything. We shouldn't live like that. That's not the way God's people ought to live. Yeah, we live in the same world, but like an aircraft carrier, we may pitch and we may roll on the turbulent waters of life on our way to our eternal dock, but we're not standing on thin ice, but we're standing on a firm foundation. Romans 8 verse 32 tells us about God's ultimate demonstration of love. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And that's a kind of love that goes to the extreme of the object of that love. And if he did that, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. I know the prosperity teachers, they like to take that verse and they like to twist it and turn it and, and talk about things of the, of the earth like more Rolls Royces or even one Rolls Royce or yachts in the harbor. But that's not what's in view here. That stuff is ridiculously insignificant when it comes to the issues 
that brings insecurity and instability to our hearts. It's not about your income or your bank account. It's about the real everyday issues of life. It's about life and death. It's about being freed from your sin and guilt or bearing the burden that everyone else is trying to pretend doesn't exist as they try to deal with who they are and how unworthy they are before a perfect God. Well, God can take all of that. He can handle all of that. If he gave us his son, he certainly will give us everything else that relates to what happened on that cross. Verse 33, he says, who shall bring, and I'm reading from the ESV, like I said uh, on Good Friday, I finally made that change, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading my ESV now. So this is what it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Now, we know that Jesus was the one who was given that role of being the judge. We learned that in the book of John. He goes on to say, but Christ is the one who died, and that's huge here. More than that, especially on Resurrection Sunday, it's important to note, not only did he die, but it says who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. For us, with that kind of love, he says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Once again, we may pitch and roll. We may have turbulent waters, but ultimately nothing is going to happen to the believer and then he quotes, by the way, Psalms 44, 22, in verse 36, he says, As it is written, for your sake. And it's always that way when we stand for the great king. We sometimes face more turbulent waters because we trust in Christ. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Jesus told us, in this life, we will have tribulations. Paul goes on to say by the Holy Spirit, no, in all these things, no matter how hard it might get, we, the believer, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the statement of a kind of love that we should bring to the Christian life, a kind of resolve, confidence, and peace that takes worries and anxieties and fear and shoves them right out of our hearts. And it makes us distinctive because the rest of the world, they don't live like that. They don't feel that way. And everything in their lives are tenuous and uncertain. 
But for the Christian, we live in the same world, but something about our relationship with God will change everything about our disposition. That's the way God expects his children to live. Because in verse 32, he says, he gave his son for us. He has dealt with the ultimate problem that we have, whether we know it or not. When it comes down to what Christ did for us 2,000 years ago, listen, as believers, our hearts need to be fully trusting what happened on that cross. We need to trust in God's forgiveness, and we need to rely on that. We need to rely on yesterday's forgiveness. Rely on it because it's done. Te telestai. That's really the exclamation point of God's love. He said that in John 19. It's translated in our English Bibles, it is finished. It is finished, that's an accounting word that was used in Greco-Roman culture. In a contract, you may have, as you paid back some debt, when it was completely paid off, they would write on it, tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. I don't know what you think your major problem is in life, but the Bible says that our biggest problem is a sin problem. And because we are sinners before a holy God, just like us as disobedient children before our earthly dad, when we look into the eyes, so to speak, of our heavenly father, we are always feeling like we're skating on thin ice. We'll always feel that way because we're sinners. Unless, of course, God settles the problem. And that's what the cross was all about. One thing that should remove uncertain feelings is a confidence in what Christ did 2,000 years ago for us. How confident are you in that? That Jesus showed us the ultimate act of love that met the necessary need in our life. One thing I know, there's a lot of kind of love that we have in our culture, and that's not that essential for us. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker on cars that say, try God? I never liked that one. Because most people say, that's okay. I'm not interested. My life is good. I'm okay. But once again, the difference is the biblical love of God, what he has for us, is a love that we desperately, desperately need. It's like floating in a shark-infested ocean, in a small little raft, and there you have no hope. Then you say, see this huge aircraft carrier pulls up along beside you and say, hey, we love you enough to invite you onto our deck. That's the kind of love we need. And without that, we're in trouble. Without it, we will never have peace. 
Because guilt will never coexist with a truly peaceful heart. See, guilt is our ultimate problem. You see, we feel guilty. Why? Because we are guilty before a holy God. The only thing that we resolve that is a kind of love that can somehow eradicate the guilt. Psalms 51, as sinners, we can never have security without forgiveness. The hallmark of real biblical love, by the way, is something that should be easy for the believer to do, but it's still hard is to forgive. Real biblical love is forgiveness. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, which was a terrible day, Nathan comes to confront him. And it says in verse 1, David writes this, he pins this, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your steadfast love, according to your unique love. Only God can love like that. David says, I need you to have mercy on me because of your love. He says, according to your abundant mercy. He doesn't say, look over my sin. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my crookedness that's in all of us, and cleanse me Here it is, the last one that we talk about all the time, my sin. I'm trying my best to hit the mark, but I don't. The other two, I knew what I was doing wrong, and I stepped over and did it anyway. David says, cleanse me of all these things, for I know my transgressions. And this, by the way, is what we all must do. It is the prerequisite for forgiveness. We must recognize and admit our sin. David says, and my sin is ever before me against you, you only, I have sinned. Oh, he sinned against people. He sinned against Bathsheba. But what brings him the most guilt, he sinned against the holy God. He says, and done what is evil in your sight. You have every right, David is saying, to zap me and kill me right now. But he continues, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward part. You want me to be right, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. But then I see a disparity there, but I just can't do it. I'm not righteous. David says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. And hyssop was that little branch they would pull off the tree. And on the day of Yom Kippur, the, the high priest would go into the temple, dip that piece of hyssop in the blood and sprinkle it on the altar. And what that would do, it would restore a relationship and fellowship with the children of Israel for that year. David says, I need that kind of atonement. I need you to eradicate my sin. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me 
and I shall be whiter than snow. I said this was a biblical distinctive here because every other religion has a different view of it than this. The biblical distinctive is Jesus eradicates our sin. We don't wash ourselves. He washes us. Most religious people, they bring their friends to church and they say, come to church with me so that you can get your act together, so that your life will be better. Really, that's not the biblical picture at all. Oh, yeah, we want to live more righteously, but the biblical distinctive is God has to deal with our sin. You can't somehow deal with your own sin yourself. God has to ultimately deal with the problem, and the ultimate problem is cleansing away our sins, what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago on the cross. I want you to really understand that whatever you've done, whether it's at the age of 12, at the age of 16, at the age of 21, at the age of 80, or whatever you did yesterday, it was paid completely on the cross of Jesus Christ. And when he said paid in full, it is done, you can't pay it over again. So that means no purgatory. That means no penance. Listen, we come by faith to the cross of Christ, and we say what you did there, Jesus, takes care of my sin. That's why we rely on yesterday's forgiveness. It is done. But the logic of our passage is the one that should condemn us is the one that saves us. He says in verse 32, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies He's the one I should have a problem with, but he's the one who has made me no longer guilty. The very one who should make me feel guilty because you're not holy. He's the one who said, I fixed a problem and now I am the one defending you. Who would have passed up something like that? I'm going to tell on myself a couple of times this morning, and here's one of them. When I was in the eighth grade, and this guy, for some reason, he just liked to pick on me all the time. I I didn't know why. But one day we were in class, and he was messing with me, and I said something that I thought was funny, but he didn't think it was that funny. And in front of the whole class, he told me this summer hour, I'll see you in fourth period at the lockers. And I was so nervous, I almost feigned sickness to go home because this dude was a big, country, strong guy. And I knew I was no match for him. But imagine, before fourth period came, him and I became best friends. And so when fourth period comes, we're laughing and joking, and we go into the locker room, and everybody there is standing around waiting to see a fight. But there's no fight. We're tight. We're having a good time. And even the ones who may 
try to make disparaging remarks. Now that this guy is my best friend, he would defend me. That's what Jesus does here. That's what he's saying. Everything that should condemn us and make us feel guilty has been dealt with on the cross. But we have to put our trust in that fact that he has paid the price, the penalty in full. That's the picture here. It's the kind of love that takes care of our sins completely. Let me show you something. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14 tells us what was really on the cross when Jesus died above his head. We know what was over the heads of the two criminals because they put it there, either insurrectionist or a murderer, but they really didn't put a crime over our Savior's head. They wrestled with Pilate back and forth, and Pilate said, put Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Well, the chief priest, he didn't like that. That's no crime. So here Jesus is dying as a criminal, and there was no charge of sin over his head. We know why, because he was sinless. The charge that hung over his head, though the people couldn't see it, was your sins and mine. Colossians tells us this. This is what it says. And you, Victor, being dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all trespasses, having wiped the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Think about that. What you did at the age of 21, he's paying for it. You are completely forgiven. The Bible says we've got to trust in that. And when when you trust in that, you've really solved the fundamental problem that leads to people like us to live a life with uncertainty. But if God gave his son so that we can be forgiven, the one that should condemn us is now our defender. We're okay, and we're going to be okay. We're not on thin ice. We're on a firm foundation of a kind of indomitable love here, strong fortress that can't be shaken. The middle of the verse of 34 of Romans tells us this. There's another aspect to this. It's not that he just died. That paid for our sin, but he was raised to life. And this was the ratifying of the life and death of Christ. But now he is alive now. It says, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? He stands between you and the judge, the one who can condemn you, and he pleads our case. And when I say he pleads our case, it's not how Calvin says that Jesus is there begging the Father to forgive us. No, God, he brings a judicial mandate to us saying, hey, Victor Summerauer is sinless because I paid the price for his sin. Jesus is our advocate 
Father, I died in his stead. He's forgiven. We need to understand that. That's intercession. It's something, by the way, that is happening right now if you're a believer. Our trust, once again, is, it's not just in a 2,000-year-old event. It's in the very present real activity that is going on right now in the presence of God that he is, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, alive so that he can intercede for us. We should revel in that this morning. We should revel in today's intercession, no matter how unworthy we might feel. We have a God who has sent his son to not only accomplish the work of redemption, but he stands before God and he now applies that redemption. Every single time you and I feel unworthy to be loved by God, because I understand that's the problem. We are sinful people. You may say, yeah, I trust that God forgave me but you still feel unworthy every time you sin. And that's the struggle. I don't feel like God can love me anymore. Listen, he's not loving you because of your behavior. He's loving you because Christ did the work for you. I'm going to give you one of my pet peeves here. Most people will say that God's love It's unconditional. You ever heard that? Well, his love is definitely not unconditional. It's highly conditional. Matter of fact, have you when's the last time you read the left side of your of your Bible? There's nothing there but conditions. If you keep this, if you do that, then I'll be your friend. Then we're okay. Well, Jesus Christ came. And he lived a sinless life. And he took all of those merits and put them, all of those qualifications, and put them in the believer's bank account. And now when we stand in front of a holy God, the believer is just as holy as Jesus Christ. Who would not take that deal? All of the merits Jesus did he defends us, and he defends us by his grace. That's why in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Have you sinned this week? I know you have. Because I have. When you sin, there's an ongoing current intercession that goes on with the Father. If, and this is a big if, if you are a child of God, that's how it works. I know you feel unworthy, and I do too. But God has made us worthy in Christ. That's why when you read the epistles, you read the letters of Paul, more, he says in Christ more than anything because that's the ark. That's the safe place in Christ. We are qualified 
in Christ. We are loved, madly in love God is with us in Christ. We're accepted in the beloved in Christ. But if that's the way it is, he died for us. He lives to intercede for us. So the future looks pretty good. Verse 35 tells us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What if it gets hard? What if I have trouble? What if I'm persecuted and I have no money and can't eat and clothe myself? What if people come after me with swords and, I try, and they try to take away my guns? What's going to happen to them then? What if I despair? What if it gets hard? What if I feel like sheep being led to the slaughter by our government insisting on telling us what we must and must not do? Verse 37 tells us, yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Christian life, there'll be days you feel terrible. There'll be times you will lose your strength. There may be a time we we stand like Peter when we should stand up and say something, but we shy away and we feel guilt and it sinks in. So we go back to the scriptures. The Bible says in Christ, we are more than conquerors and nothing, no matter what it is, Verse 38 tells us, for I am persuaded that neither death. Like how the Holy Spirit puts, okay, death first, because that's mainly what we wrestle with. But not only death, when we get that straightened out, that we've had faith in Jesus Christ and we're, we're his children, then we have to handle life. Then he says, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor a height, nor death, nor any other. And I love this, created thing. God alone, everything else is created. We don't have to worry about any of that. Is that a job? Is a job a created thing? Is that exam a created thing? Is that divorce a created thing? That illness, that tough home living arrangement? Are those children a created thing? You better believe they are. And the Holy Spirit says, nothing shall be able to separate us. We're okay. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He earned that for us. And here's a little paradoxical paradoxical statement here. We need to rest in tomorrow's relationship because you're going to have it tomorrow. We need to rest in the relationship that we have with the Lord because we're going to have it tomorrow. We need to rest in tomorrow's relationship. If you're really a child of God, if you've repented of your sins and placed your trust In Christ, the love of God will surely endure. You don't have to worry about that because his kind of love is unlike the kind of love we all have experienced. 
We've all probably experienced in junior high, someone says, tell so-and-so, I love him. That happened to me about in the seventh grade. I'm sitting there minding my own manners, not thinking about especially a girl. But matter of fact, I guess I was because when my best friend comes to me and he says, so-and-so told me to tell you that she likes you. And I said, what? I'm just eating my lunch, my peanut butter sandwich. She told me to tell you that she likes you. And I said, no, she didn't. I said, go back and tell Lisa. I think her name was Lisa. I'm sure her name was Lisa. Go back and tell Lisa that I like her too. Hurry up and tell her. No cell phones at this time. So if it goes through the wire and all those things, it took about a day and a half. My best friend comes back. I got some news for you. Lisa doesn't like you anymore. I said, what? I don't even know her. I haven't even said anything to her. And she doesn't like me anymore. Yeah, that's what she told me to tell you. I said, okay. I was crushed. Same school, same year, two weeks later, I've got something to tell you. Lisa likes you. True story. Lisa likes you. I said, is this old news or new news that she likes me? I should have said, or is this fake news? But he said, no, 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 this is new news. I said, go back quickly and tell her that I like her too. Hurry up and tell her. I'm not kidding. Two days later, Lisa doesn't like you anymore. What is wrong with me? What is is wrong with Lisa? That happened. That's a fickle kind of love. That's the love that most of the time that happens on our planet. Even when people say, till death do us part. Have you noticed that? It doesn't always turn out that way. And it doesn't often work. That's not the way it is when the Bible says, go tell Victor that God says, tell him, hey, no matter what, we're in this forever. I love him. Go back and tell him real quick before he changes his mind. I love him too. God doesn't change. That's the difference between God's love and our love. Well, there's a lot of difference anyway, but the main difference is his commitment to love is an intelligent love. And what I mean by intelligent love, the Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. When my wife fell in love with me when I was 152 pounds. She never knew I would turn out like this, 202 pounds. That's the way thing goes. But when God makes a commitment himself and he sets his love on me, we have to understand he knew my future. He saw it. There's no surprise Nothing in my life 
is a surprise to God. I've blown it many of times as a believer. And I've, Lord, I can't believe it. Lord, help me. Lord, I'm so sorry and meant that. But he knew that when he chose me. He died for me 2,000 years ago. He lives to intercede for me today. And he has promised his love to me forever. That's how it works with God. He's not fickle. He doesn't change his mind. It's not based on emotions. It's based on his decision to love and his power to maintain that love. John 10, 27 through 30, this is a passage about God loving his sheep to the end, the Holy Spirit says. Jesus says, I am the shepherd. These are my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice, and I give them eternal life. And here's the punchline, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And he says, the Father is greater than I And no one can snatch them out of his hand. Verse 30, I and my father are one. God holds us in his hand because he loves us. We're in Christ. And if we were to be released from the grip of God's love, that would be catastrophic. And when we would stand on that throne room, in that throne room, truly, we would be standing on thin ice. But the believer does not have to worry about that this morning because Jesus says no one can snatch us out of his hand. Do you understand that kind of security that comes with that? And that makes us different, the believer different from anyone else on the planet. Go home and ask your neighbor if they're going to heaven and watch what they say if they're not a believer. Most people will say, I hope so. That's not the believer. The biblical hope of the Bible is a confidence. And we're not confident in and of ourselves, but we're confident in Christ. He paid it all, and he holds me in his hand, and nothing is going to separate me from the love of God. Well, what about what I might do next week? He knew that. No surprises with God. You see, I know the problem. And the problem is you and I are going to feel unworthy of God's love sometimes. Matter of fact, we will feel that way next week. I get it and I understand. But we're not loved. At least I'm not loved because I'm lovable. You can ask Lydia. I'm loved because he has made a decision to love me. He has his grip on me. He does it all. Quickly, Psalms 1, uh, Psalms 103, verse 11 says this, and it correlates to what I'm saying. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love, God's unique love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, which is forever, so far does he remove 
He doesn't say our sin. That would have been good. But he doesn't, the Holy Spirit made sure not to say our sin. That's bad enough. Once again, he uses that word transgression. Don't cross that mark. I cross it anyway. That's what a transgression is. He says he removes those from us. As, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Notice he says to his children. We talked about this last Sunday as we we're going through the book of John. We need to be children to get these benefits, what he's speaking of. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, I'm not saying we make excuses for our sin. We should hate our sin. We should strive to be holy. We should try to sin less. But we have to understand that when we do sin, nothing can separate you or I from the love of God. Let's not get it twisted this morning. I'm talking about those people who have repented of their sins and put their trust in the person of Jesus Christ. They've trusted in a 2,000-year-old account of the cross, and they trust in a Christ that intercedes for them. I'm talking about those people. I'm not talking about people who can kind of get on the bandwagon and say, I'll go to church when it's convenient, and if I have time, they're not really his children. I'm talking about those who have truly given their lives to Jesus Christ. They will never be separated from the love of Christ. We need to remember that. David had to remind himself of these benefits. And we will have to remind ourselves also in that same Psalm, verse 1 through 4, David says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases, whether here or when he takes us home? Who redeems your life from the pit? who crowns you with steadfast hesed love, a covenant love. He's bound to take care of us with his love and mercy. I'm getting older. I used to never like sticky notes. I like them now because they remind me, hey, I need to do this, I need to do that. But we need to put sticky notes on our fridge that says God loves us. God is madly in love with us. No matter how turbulent the ride might feel on the deck of this aircraft carrier, God loves us. Just remind yourself that he is madly in love with us. If you're his child, it's a kind of love that can never be removed from your life. That's God's love. I know you guys call me Amos. It doesn't matter. I teach the word. (laughs) And I'm usually saying, well, I'm usually, I'm all the time saying what the passage says, but we don't skip over anything. Where, Where there's a rebuke, there's a rebuke. 
where the Lord says, hey, you need to walk up right before me. We need to walk up right before him. And so this is a kind of a different shift for Pastor Victor this morning. But as I was putting this together, one of my concerns when I preach on this passage about the love of God, there's a danger of kind of giving people a false hope. See, we all want this kind of love. But Jesus is very clear. There's only one way to get it, and that's by trusting in him. That's why he tells his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. I'm the only payment for sin, and I'm the only one that can deal with your sin problem. I'm the only intercession that can give you peace. I'm the only one that has this kind of love, and I offer that kind of love to you this morning. A kind of love that will endure to the end. The worship team can come up. But to have this kind of love, we have to do something. We have to repent of our sins and put our trust in the person of Jesus Christ to receive all of these benefits. Because I started off from the beginning saying I'm not on thin ice. And everyone in here that's a believer in Jesus Christ is not on thin ice. But mark my words, if you have not been born again, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, everything might be going well for you here. And you might think you're standing on that Nimitz aircraft carrier. My money's good. My family's good. My job is good. You're on thin ice. Because we're not going to live here forever. That same judge, Jesus Christ, who says, hey, my son and daughters, they're forgiven because they're my kids. If you don't know him this morning, He's going to have to judge you, and he's holy, and I believe he will judge the unbeliever with tears in his eyes and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I've never known you. We don't want that. What I want to know this morning, or even those that's online, If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, here's an opportunity to give your life to the Savior. Paul says, of all men, especially those who are perishing, I'm pleading with you to come and get on the ark. I'm pleading with you to come to that open door, who who stands there with holes in his hands saying, come, because I would love to give you eternal life. I would love to give it to you. I'm madly in love with you, but I'm holy. I'm just. So please come to me. You don't have to come up front. Pray and ask him to forgive you of your sins. 
mean that, trust in that, Jesus is faithful and true. He will forgive you. And then I'm not going to stand up here and say your life is going to be perfect and you're going to have an easy ride to those eternal shores. It's going to get bumpy. You're going, you're going to pitch and roll, but you don't have to fear. God will take you to the place of safety if we only trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that you told me, even when I didn't realize that I was standing on thin ice, that the wages of sin is death. But I have a gift for you, the gift of God that cost him everything to be separated from his son in order to give us eternal life. That's the gift. There's no other gift. There's no other way. There's no other so-called religion that can get us to where we need to be. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we're standing on solid ground because all other sin is sinking sin. All other ground is sinking sin. Lord, I pray that you would move in hearts. I pray that you would reveal that people are sinners needing to be saved by Jesus Christ and they would come to you, Father, and give their lives to you. Father, we love you. We boast in this day. The grave couldn't hold you. Sin couldn't hold you because you're sinless. I tell the kids all the time, the only reason we leave this planet is because we sin. And the wages of sin is death. That's the only reason Jesus Christ could resurrect from the earth because he was a sinless, he is a sinless son of God. And he bore our sins. That we can say when we lay down this body, absent from the body, present with the Lord because we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Father, do a work here. And we'll be sure to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song.